Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. We'd like to start a study on the the value and the power of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Here the first word we're introduced here, the first word to which we're introduced is atonement. So one thing that the blood does for us, it makes atonement. In the Old Testament that word is kafar. If you want to spell that, that's K. A-P-H-A-R Kafar And here in Brooklyn you're quite familiar with Yom Kippur no? The Day of Atonement Kippur comes from the same word Kafar, Kippur Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement <coughs> The first usage of the word in the Bible and people who do word studies in the Bible place some importance on its first usage. Any new word introduced, especially in a theological term. The first use of it is rather interesting in Genesis chapter 16, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. For God said to Noah, verse 13, and God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. Through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Here, the word pitch is from this word kefar. So it was a covering, covering without and a covering within, to, of course, protect the ark from taking in water becoming water-soaked or leaking and sinking. So the word kephart itself means to cover, which gives us, of course, a thought that the blood of Jesus Christ is covering our sins, covering our iniquities. It's also translated in our King James Bible to reconcile. Reconcile means to make Two people to be at peace or to remove the enmity between two people. The word atonement sometimes is broken down in the English. It works only in English, of course, but it does spell out that way at one ment. In other words, taking two people that are at enmity and bringing them into agreement, reconciling at one ment. That's not the root meaning so much as to cover. However, it is a fairly accurate description also of this concept of reconciling. And we have the word used in reconciling in Leviticus chapter 6. Verse 30. And no sin offering whereof any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile with all in the holy place shall be eaten and shall be burnt in the fire. So here again, there's reconciliation. 
made in the sin offering. When a man sins, when the congregation is guilty of sin, it comes to their knowledge, then they have to bring their sin offering. And as it says in verse 29, this is a most holy offering before the Lord. That is to say, of course, the Lord knows our sin anyway, but when we recognize our sin and when we come and seek atonement with God, seek reconciliation from God, seek a forgiveness, a pardon from God, seek a covering over of our guiltiness in the eyes of God, that's the most holy offering before the Lord. And here's called reconciling, reconciling with all in the holy place. That's that same word, kephar. Also chapter 8, Leviticus chapter 8, verse 15 This is the consecration of Aaron and his sons. We can read verse 14. And he brought the bullock for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bullock for the sin offering. In other words, confessing their sins over the bullock, transferring their sins to the bullock, or transferring the guilt, at least, of their sins to the bullock. And he slew it, and Moses took the blood and put it upon the horns of the altar, round about with his finger, and purified the altar, and poured the blood at the bottom of the altar, and sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it. So here this reconciliation again is the word kephar, or atonement. This is one thing that the blood does. It reconciles between man and God. It covers our guiltiness. And also in chapter 16, verse 20, Leviticus chapter 16, Verse 20, and when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And of course, the live goat is sent away, as you know, bearing the sins of the people. So here the holy place and the tabernacle and the altar have to be reconciled or toned for. So everything has to be atoned with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no atonement. There's no reconciliation between man and God. There's no covering of our uncleanness. So the first thing we see that the blood of Jesus Christ does, it makes atonement and reconciles. We might look up at some, some of the words where atonement itself is used. Exodus 29 Verses 36 and 37. Now this is the ram of consecration, beginning verse, uh, let's begin verse 31. And thou shalt take the ram of the consecration and seethe his flesh in the holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And they shall eat those things wherewith the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But a stranger shall not eat thereof, because they are holy. And if aught of the flesh of the consecrations, or of the bread, remain unto the morning, then thou shalt burn the remainder with fire, it shall not be eaten, because it is holy. And thus shalt thou do unto Aaron and to his sons, according to all the things that I have commanded thee. Seven days shalt thou consecrate them. And thou shalt offer every day a bullock for a sin offering for atonement. And thou shalt cleanse the altar. 
when thou hast made an atonement for it, and thou shalt anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar, and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. So here in the use of the blood to make atonement again, it's the ram of consecration, but the atonement is also for the altar, and it becomes most holy by virtue of the blood being applied to it. So atonement is not only a covering for our sins, it's a reconciling with God, and it's a capacitating something to stand in the presence of God as most holy, all because of the blood that is applied. Look in Exodus also chapter 30. Verse 10, And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year, and the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in a year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. So here the blood is repeatedly applied to enable the uh, service of God to remain holy unto the Lord continual atonement upon the altar. And also verses 15 and 16. Here we have the money of atonement. The half shekel we'll give here beginning in verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after the number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. This they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is twenty giras, and half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. Every one that passeth among them that are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls, and thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and thou shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Now what would be your understanding of the meaning of this half-shekel atonement money? Why was, why was the money required when actually there was a blood that made atonement? God has given us the blood of the sacrifice to make an atonement for our souls. Without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement. Why was the money then required as a price of atonement? Of course, one thing comes to mind right away is from Peter, where he says, we are not redeemed with uh, corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So in contrast, of course, in the New Testament, it tells us we're not redeemed the price of money. But were the Old Testament saints, were they redeemed by the price of money? Was there any saving virtue in this? Remember when they were brought out of Egypt? Did they have to pay any money when they were brought out of Egypt? What brought them out of that destruction at that time? It was the blood of the Passover lamb, right? In fact, did God take any money from them or did God give money to them? God gave money to them. So, uh, money itself has no redemptive power. But what's the meaning of this price of redemption here then? 
Was this money actually redeeming them? What was this money doing? Uh huh. They didn't pay the money, and the plague would come upon them. And does this mean that they had to pay the money every so often, or the plague would come? When did they have to pay the money? Ah, were they supposed to number the people? Huh? When, when David numbered the people, uh, the plague came on him, didn't it? Uh, in fact, it came upon all the people. Maybe because he forgot to collect the redemption money. So this might not be so much a matter of redeeming the souls of the people as redeeming the ones that are doing the counting. In other words, if we start to if we start to boast and brag about how many we are, we better cover ourselves under the blood. Huh? <laughs> In other words, we better have an atonement for our pride of numbering ourselves. This is one thought. I'm not saying this is the final answer on this subject, but in King David's case, when he wanted to number the people, what did Joab say? Yeah, he says, let there be ever so many. I mean, who cares how many there are? But why did David want to know the number? Probably, I presume, because he wanted to see how vast a kingdom he ruled over. Have you ever numbered how many people you have in your congregation or when you're talking to another pastor or talking to somebody else from another faith home, do you ever like to tell them how many people came to the meeting? <laughs> now, when it comes to workers, you ever like to figure out how many workers we have or count how many people there are in the photograph? Do you ever feel checked when you start thinking about those things? Well, I think we I think we better have some kind of atonement when we start doing things like that. Uh, counting numbers and noticing how many we are, how many we have, and boasting and bragging about such things as that. And so our our attitudes may have to be redeemed. But one thing is interesting, in verse 15, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less. So I think this would take us back, of course, to the blood of Jesus Christ. As Peter says, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So whatever it is, to be right with God, we need to be under the blood. And I think if our hearts and minds are under the blood, we won't be counting each other and boasting and bragging about how many or who or whatever we are. But these are various uses of the word kephar. That's all we're showing in the Bible, what the word atonement means, reconcile, atonement. There's also an interesting use in Genesis chapter 32, verse 20. <clears throat> now this is where Jacob was returning and about to meet with Esau. And of course he was afraid to meet with Esau because the last news he had from Esau was that Esau wanted to kill him. So a bit he's afraid, he's afraid you know, so he puts his goods and his children and his wives in different groups and has a group of cattle to go on ahead to be like an offering to appease Esau. See verse 13, and he lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau, his brother, 200 she-goats and 20 he-goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camels with their coats, 40 kine, and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses, and 10 foals. 
and he delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove by themselves and said unto his servants, Pass over before me and put a space betwixt drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau, my brother, meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou, and whither goest thou, and whose are these before thee? Then thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my lord Esau. Behold, also he is behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third, and all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall you speak unto Esau when you find him. And say ye moreover, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me, and afterward I will see his face peradventure. He will accept of me. So here the word appease again is the word kefar. So another thought of atonement again is to reconcile, to make peace between enemies, to appease wrath and anger, and to bring about a merciful encounter between the two. It's also used in the sense of being merciful and forgiving. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 8. Now here's a case where uh, the murderer, or a man fleeing, charged the murderers, brought into the, the city, of course, and uh, if he's guilty, they have to kill him. But uh, otherwise, here we'll read from, we'll read from verse 1. If one be found slain in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, that it be not known who hath slain him, then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man, even the elders of that city, shall take an heifer which hath not been wrought with, and uh, which hath not drawn in the oak. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto the rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests and the sons of the Levites shall come near for them that the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. And all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not this innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, for the blood shall be forgiven them. So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. So rather, here's a case of a person who's found slain. No one knows exactly who did it. And so they measure around, find the closest city, and here the elders have to declare their innocence. Innocence in both aspects. One, they had not committed the crime. Second, they had not seen it. They did not know who was guilty. And, of course, blood is shed, and this blood makes atonement for them. And in verse 8, you have the word kephar used twice. First is, be merciful. That's kephar, O Lord, unto thy people. The last part of the verse says, and the blood shall be forgiven them. Kephar again. So here it's a, an atonement, a covering, a reconciliation, a removing of guilt. And even for an innocent person, he also needs to have this kephar, this atonement between him and the Lord. Now we said that the original meaning is to cover when they pitched the ark within and without. Here's another case where the sense of covering is used also. 
Exodus chapter 25, verse 15 and on. It's talking about the ark here. This, well, actually, beginning, we're beginning of verse 16. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee, and thou shalt make a mercy seat, or a covering, or a lid for the ark. So the name of the covering, the name of the lid of the ark, is Kapore, K-A-P-P-O-R-E-T-H. K-A-P-P-O-R-E-T-H. But this is from the word kephar. It's spelled different, pronounced a bit different, but it's actually the same root word meaning. So here it's a covering, here it's a lid, but interesting enough in our King James Bible it's called the mercy seat, which is sort of a fanciful term. The word mercy and the word seat are not in the Hebrew, it's just the word kephar. But the thought is, it is a covering, it is a protection, it is a hiding, but it's also a place where mercy and reconciliation, propitiation, atonement is found. And of course, you, wherever you read about the mercy seat, on down in these verses, following other places, it's that same word from the word kephar, the actual word being kaporet, the mercy seat. Now, this word mercy seat in the New Testament, of course, is a Greek word, but we can go right to the same thing here in the mercy seat, the covering of the ark. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. And here in chapter 9, you know, he's speaking about the tabernacle with its various furnishings, its various parts. Verse, verse 3 says, And after the second veil of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. So here the same word used in the King James Bible called the mercy seat. Now in Greek, let me spell this word out because we're going to see where this word is used elsewhere. This is halasterian, uh, I'm sorry, hilasterian, spelled out like H I. L A S T E R I O N Hilasteria. This is the word for mercy seat. But this word is also used concerning the blood of Jesus Christ in another common biblical word, but not understood by common use usage in English. Romans chapter three, verse twenty-five. But it will give us more understanding, of course, of what the word atonement means. He, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 25. For God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So here the word hilasterian is translated propitiation. The word propitiation is the same word translated mercy seat. So this puts the word atonement in the Old Testament with propitiation in the New Testament. They both mean the same. We don't use this word in common English except to propitiate. You ever heard the word 
used in common English to propitiate. It means when two people are fighting or angry one with another and you want to reconcile them, you propitiate them. So it has again to do with the word reconciliation. In fact, the same word, Elasterian, is used, reconciliation. Look again back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved Christ to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. To make reconciliation, hilasterion, or to make atonement, to make propitiation, to make a mercy seat. So these, this is all accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's through faith in his blood. We read in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Through faith in his blood, this atonement is made, reconciliation is made, peace is made, and we find the mercies of God. Now this is when we have faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Even in the Old Testament, they were to exercise faith when they, slid the, when they slew the animal. And when the blood was applied, they actually, the theologians uh, judge, and I think it's proper, that as they were slaying those animals in the Old Testament, the real value of the blood was that they, consciously or unconsciously, were believing on the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. They were believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that had the blood of Christ not been shed at Calvary, the blood of those animals of olden times would have been valueless. But they had value only because they were looking forward to Calvary. They were representing Calvary. And so to speak, when Christ was crucified, then all those Old Testament sacrifices were validated. It's like someone gives you a check. Let's say someone owes you $100, so they give you a check for $100. But you thank them, and you, you then you write them a, a statement saying their debt is canceled. But that piece of paper they gave you, of course, is valueless until you take it to the bank and cash it in and get real spendable money in its place. Nevertheless, the check is of value. In fact, if you read on the even the bills you get, even the dollar bills you get are valueless. They're just so much piece of paper printed with green or black ink or whatever. But on the bill it say this bill is is or there is a there is on deposit in the Treasury of the United States this much gold. So even that piece of paper has value only because it's backed up by something of real and tangible worth. So like that, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were like checks or they were like drawings or paintings or like bills they were like a promissory note of value only against the reality which was the blood of Jesus Christ shed at Calvary so it's through faith in the blood it's the faith that makes the blood of value so we need to exercise faith in the blood of Jesus Christ and the same propitiation is given to us in 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 I mean, we emphasize the need to have faith because without faith you cannot please God. Without faith, nothing really works. So the blood may have been shed, but until we have faith in it, it may not bring value into our lives, as I think we can see from this verse here, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, or verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 
and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Here again, the word propitiation is elasterian. Now, I think we need to see two things here. One is, my little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. So he's not talking about willful sinning. There is no sacrifice for willful sinning. He's talking about sins of ignorance. The blood of bulls and goats, as well as the blood of Jesus Christ, were shed for sins of ignorance. Christ died for the sins of the ignorance of the people. God passed over this time of ignorance. He passed over, of course, only because of the efficacy of of the shed blood of Christ. But we are not to sin, but if we sin, and we all do, of course. So our the, the, the purpose of writing these things is not to excuse sin or tolerate sin, nor certainly not to encourage sin. One theologian has judged, and I think rightly, that if we can go right on sinning and the blood goes right on covering and atoning, then the blood of Christ becomes contributory to sinning which, of course, could not be so because it was shed just for the opposite purpose, to cease sinning. And I think when we realize that one value of the blood is that it shows us the seriousness and the penalty of sinning, that should work in our, in our hearts and our minds, a, a new attitude about sinning. When we realize that Christ had to die, suffer and die because of our sins, that should produce a turning from sin on our part. So this is not to uh, encourage sin in any sense of the word, but nevertheless, if we should sin, and we all do through ignorance and through weakness and frailty and, and the tempter in one thing or another, then, praise God, we do have an intercessor. We have an advocate, and he's interceding, of course, on the basis of his blood. The Bible says his blood speaketh better things than the blood of Abel. So Christ went into the most holy place, the presence of God, on our behalf, with his own blood, reconciling, making making reconciliation. And he is the propitiation, of course, through his blood. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now here we can see the necessity of faith in the blood. We can actually preach on the street corner and tell everybody, Hey, we have some good news to tell you. Your sins are forgiven you. You drunkard across the street, you murderer, you prostitute over there. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, we can say that because it's true. There has been made an atonement for their sins. But if they don't believe it, it will not work any value in their lives. But if they believe it, that should bring about repentance, a new heart, cleansing of guilt, And the ability to come to God with a clear conscience as a child of God and cry, Abba, Father. So, in one sense, he has propitiated the sins of the whole world. He doesn't have to come back and die every time a sinner repents. In fact, sometimes when I lead a sinner to repentance, I sometimes not only say, lead him in a prayer, Lord, forgive me my sins, but Lord, thank you for forgiving me my sins. Because it's not a matter of just pleading, it's a matter of recognizing. For example, the Catholics, they may plead a thousand times over, be merciful to be a sinner. Isn't there some kind of automatic prayer? They pray like that, the rosary or whatever it is. They may pray a thousand times and yet nothing works because they don't believe. 
But no sooner you believe that then the power of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ begins to work in our lives. So he is a propitiation in one sense for the sins of the whole world, but particularly for us. As the Bible says in other places, he's the savior of all men, especially those that believe, <laughs> especially because it works in our lives when we do believe. Also chapter 4, verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The hilasterion for our sins. In other words, making a covering, making a reconciliation. And it's interesting, this word, the same word, hilasterion, is also translated to be merciful. Look in Luke chapter 18, verse 13. A well-known verse, but it's interesting that the same concept is used here. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here, be merciful is the translation of the word hilasterion. So he's not doing as so many would do, is, well, God, you know I'm a sinner. I'm going on sinning day by day by day. He says, you just forget about it. Forgive me. It's not that. It's He's crying out, Lord, make a reconciliation for me. Lord, let there be a an atonement. Let there be a uh, an appeasement. Let there be a reconciliation between you and me. Whether he understood that theologically or not, he's using this word. And probably being a Jew, Old Testament times, he would have used the word kephar. Lord, let there be a day of atonement. Let there be a blood sacrifice shed for me. Let there be a propitiation between you and me. And also in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more forever. This be merciful is Hilasterion. So the very foundation of the New Testament is quoted here in Hebrews chapter 8 from verse 9 to 12, is that God will be merciful to our unrighteousness. So this is the first value we see, or the first operation we see of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's to bring the mercies of God, covering us over our unrighteousness, covering our iniquities, as King David said, blessed is the man whose sins are covered. I think we all know that verse, although the same Greek word is not there. It's the same thought in Romans chapter 4. I think it might be well to look at this because there's one more thought brought out here. Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. And we might even begin it. Verse 5. But to him that worketh not. Well, in verse 3, we have to start to get the whole thought here. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the godly, 
his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity, not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. And it goes on to explain how he was justified or counted righteous, yet being uncircumcised. So the whole basis of our salvation is on the mercies of God, is on the kindness and the forbearance and the long-suffering of God. It's that we with no works at all, with nothing to bring before God but our own sins, we bring our sin offering before the God, confessing our sins, then God has provided a propitiation. God has provided the blood of the Lamb. Going back to chapter 3, verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So, because the blood of Jesus Christ was offered on our behalf, God covers our sins, he passes over them, he forgets about them, and he is able to receive us unto himself in reconciliation, in peace, and in mercy. But this is all through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting where Paul is quoting from David here. I think we looked that up one time before when we were studying the condition of the heart. But where's that quoted from? Where are verses 7 and 8 quoted from? Psalm 32, 1 and 2. What's the additional thought that's added there? If you look again, maybe you've forgotten. Psalm 32, 1 and 2. There's one more additional thought there, which I think is very essential to understand how God, God's point of view in this whole matter of atonement and reconciliation. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. So, genuine faith, sincerity and repentance, of course, are necessary for the blood to have its effect in our lives. We don't have to offer works. We don't have to offer money. There's nothing we can bring. But we, have, we come by faith, faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. But this faith must be sincere faith, unfeigned faith, as Paul says in Timothy. And any hypocritical approach unto the blood, or you can sing the power in the blood, and you can say the blood, the blood, the blood, it will have no effect at all without genuine faith. Genuine faith comes from a repentant heart. When you really see your sins and see the uh, death of Jesus Christ in our, sta our stead, a sincere person will, of course, repent and cry out like the publican did, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, cover my sin. Lord, pardon my sin. Lord, atone for my sin, reconcile my sin. And then, of course, the answer will come that that's been done through the blood of Jesus Christ. But God wants us to have faith in that blood. We should never remember our former sins. I remember their sins and iniquities no more forever. And one thing is certainly a poisonous death in the life of so many of God's people. And we've encountered it face to face in these last few weeks. It's something which 
I say sincerely, is appalling and frightening to the depth of our spirit is, we have found people still grieving over former things, either condemning themselves because of former sins or feeling grief because of sins others have committed against them, self-pity or remembering former faults. I want to say all of that is because of a lack of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience from sin. We'll study that more as we go on. But there must be a complete and total forgetting of those things that are past. If we understand Calvary's sacrifice, if we understand the power of the blood, there is a forgetting, there is a remission, there is a release from former things, our sins and other sins. Very clearly it is stated that if we remember other people's sins, of course, then God will have to remember ours also. So that would take us into the next aspect of the blood of Christ. This was all under the first aspect, the atonement of the propitiation. And we'll study the next aspect right from this Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that's Hilasterian, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now here we come to a second theological concept, remission. In the margin, you probably find a little, another thought there, passing over. So it's one thing to cover over, and very similar to that is to pass over. Now, of course, we come to the concept of the blood of the Passover lamb. When God saw the blood, he passed over in condemnation and guilt. In the book of Acts, it says he winked at. In Spanish, it says he passed over. In English, it says he winked at. So here we come to the word remission. It's quite, quite related to the former word, but slightly different. And, of course, we remember, we won't need to look this up, but you can write it down in Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus was serving the Last Supper to his disciples. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. And it's interesting how remission is, there's importance placed on remission. Look in Mark chapter 1, verse 4. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, the Greek word we're studying here is aphasis, A-P-H-E-S-I-S, I'm sorry, A-P-H-E-S-I-S, aphasis. It is used for the English word forgiveness, but also freedom from, also liberty from. And it comes from another Greek word, which means to send forth. So it's something which is remitted, which is released, which is given liberty, which is sent out, sent away. Now here, baptism is related in this ministry. 
We have remission of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. But baptism is also for the remission of sins, baptism of repentance. So here the blood of Jesus Christ works together with our repentance. And baptism, of course, exemplifies or pictures, drives home into our consciousness this, this aspect of the blood of Christ, which is an actually a washing away of our sins. See, when you go down in the water, the old man, the old former life is washed away. Therefore, to come up out of the water and to look back and remember our former sins or someone else's sins is to deny the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, with the blood, this is not just an optional benefit of the blood. It's a necessary benefit of the blood for salvation. So if we can yet in any way grieve over and remember former sins, then we'll find, as we go on studying this, that our sins are still clinging to us. The blood has not worked in that area of our lives. And our remembrance or our conscience is not yet cleansed as it ought to be from the blood. So if we can yet in any way grieve over and remember former sins, then we'll find, as we go on studying this, that our sins are still clinging to us. The blood has not worked in that area of our lives. And our remembrance or our conscience is not yet cleansed as it ought to be from the blood. Look in Luke chapter 1, verse 77. This is an essential part of our salvation. As I say, it's not an optional additional benefit. Uh, Luke chapter 1, we'll read from 76. Well, we even read it earlier, it's being a 74. Or even 73. Well, we got to go further up. <laughs> we'll read from... It's, of course, all the prophecy of Zechariah, but read from 71, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light unto them that sit in darkness, and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So all of this is possible, and this salvation is possible and effective in our lives, only by the remission of our sins. If our sins are only covered and they're not remitted, if they're only winked at and not taken away, our salvation is not complete. And so if we rejoice that Christ died for us and that God has forgiven us, and yet we still have remembrance of sin, the blood of Jesus Christ has not done its cleansing work. Because... Where there is remission of sins, there is no more remembrance of sin, the Bible says. There is no more sacrifice for sin. The work is finished. And as I say, if we're continually conscious of our sins or of the sins of another, then the blood of Jesus Christ has not been allowed to do its full work. So we must earnestly 
Seek faith in the blood until all remembrance of former things are forgotten. In the sense of deliverance, look at Luke 4, 18. Here the same word is used. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. That's the same word, aphasis. To preach remission, deliverance. That means a releasing. The bond is no longer there. The thing is no longer on top of you. Its grip is no longer effective in your life. Its dominion over you is gone. You are free from it to preach deliverance to the captives. Now, we, we know what it is to have a demon tormenting us. And when the demon is cast out, we are free. And I have found that where there is still a remembrance of former things, there is a bondage. We had one sister related to Ruthie Warby who came to us one time. Doesn't come to, did not come to our church, but in her father's church. And uh, she wanted deliverance. So I asked Sister Jill Barlock to go and pray with her. Shortly, Jill came to my room and said, Come quickly. The demon has manifested itself. So it came, and she said it was a horrible, hideous thing. Now, this young girl was in the Lord's work. She was living there in the church and helping her uncle, Brother Farb, in the ministry. And a very nice girl. And uh, so I said, Well, what, what is it? She said, they, they don't know. So I began to pray for her, and sure enough, the demon manifested itself, quite a hideous thing. And uh, tried to cast it out, it would not come out. Very often when demons don't come out, when they're commanded to, it's because God wants us to find out what it is, to help the person in their repentance. So he said, demon, what is your name? It would not give its name. So then uh, I didn't know what to do, and I prayed, and a thought came to me, I said, sister, do you know what it is? She did not know. And then I prayed again. I said, Lord, now what do we do? So then a thought came. And I said, Sister, uh, does anything of your former life come back to your mind from time to time? She said, no. She said, oh, yeah. She says, strange thing. Whenever people are telling me their problems, I often end up by telling them one of my problems. And I always wonder, why do I do that anyway? I said, well, what is it? She says, well, my, uh, my uncle, Brother Harvey, my uncle, he, he loves all the other people there at his house more than he loves me. My husband, he loves everybody else more than he loves me. And my brother, he loves everybody else more than he loves me. My father, he loves everybody else more than he loves me. I said, well, what do you mean? She says, well, one time... My father promised to buy me a wristwatch and he never bought it for me. And she started to pucker up and cry and howl. And I began to feel sorry for her. And Jill said, that's the demon. I said, I think you're right. I said, you demon of self-pity come out. And out it came with a big screech. And she got so happy. She just praised God and smiled after her. She said, I'll never feel sorry for myself again. <laughs> So, her inability to forget former things was a bondage. And a demon had gotten in there and laid hold upon her. And I've seen this thing of self-pity rise again and again and again, including just the other day here. 
And that's all because we have not allowed the blood to cleanse our consciousness, our awareness of sin, be it ours or someone else's. Look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 4. I should say. Again, going up from verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. I hear the word forgiveness is the same word aphasis. But you see, it's related to delivered from the power of darkness and the ability to dwell in the kingdom of his dear son, the son of his love, in whom we also have redemption through, the, through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, the aphasis of sins, the freedom from, the remission from, translated other places, remission. Now let's look in Mark chapter 3 where the same word is used again. Mark chapter 3, verse 29. Verses 28 and 29. Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith whoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Here the word forgiveness is a faces. So it's not just a remembrance, but the thing shall cleave to him. That's what I see here. That sin shall cleave to him. You cannot be released from it. Like you're bitten by a serpent and you can't shake the thing off. It'll cleave to you forever. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. We're looking up different uses of the word of faces. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So all this is one purpose why Christ came and shed his blood that as a response to our repentance, and especially our obedience and water baptism, there is a release from, a forgiveness from, a remission of our sins. Chapter 13, verse 38, continuing the book of Acts. Chapter 13, verse 38. Be known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Again, the effaces, the remission, the release from sin. Chapter 26, verse 18. Beginning at verse 16, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in thee, which those things in the which I will appear unto thee, 
delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom thou hast sent thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. The faces of their sins. So here again it's related to coming out of darkness, coming into light, being released from the power of Satan unto God by the remission, the forgiveness, the release, the liberty from our sins. And going back to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 verse 49. Beginning up here in verse 47. Remember the story how Jesus went in to eat at Simon's house. And this unclean woman came in and began to wash uh, his feet. And uh, Simon was indignant, verse 39. And when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known also in what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed him five hundred pence, and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time that I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And they that sat and meet with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. So here amongst all the people assembled, she was the worst of sinners. But the Lord lets her know that her sins are forgiven, her faces, her sins are remitted her. They're no longer accredited to her account. They will no longer be remembered. Because she's weeping at his feet. She's repentant. And of course, as I say, all of this is through the value of his blood, which was soon to be shed. But this Pharisee, looking at things from the point of human worth, judged that he was better than she. Now, this is where all self-pity comes from. We judge that we are better than the other. Once we have been to Calvary with a full realization of the sinners that we are and have been cleansed in his blood, it is impossible to feel grieved over another man's faults because the first realization comes to us as well. He is better than I, esteeming each other better than ourselves. You cannot go to Calvary with a real encounter with the blood of Christ without coming away with a total appreciation of your total depravity and a full appreciation of his wonderful grace. 
Therefore, when you look at any other human being, you could not possibly imagine that he's as bad as you are. For one reason, you haven't seen all of his wicked sins as you have seen your own. So, our ability to forgive one another is based on our having been washed in the blood of Christ at the foot of the cross. And if we in any sense are conscious of another man's sins, we are irritated with another man's faults, and we feel in any way indignant that we have been bothered by another man's transgressions, it means simply that we have not been fully cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We have not or we have drifted away from Calvary's fountain. Because all irritation with others, all irritation with others, is based on the judgment that we are better than they. And that's a false judgment, showing ignorance of Calvary. And as we go on studying the word Ephesus, we will see that's exactly what he deals with here in Matthew chapter 6. studying, I think last time I was here, about the unprofitable servant, how when he came in from the field working, he wasn't even given anything to eat or drink. He was told to serve them the more, never thanked or appreciated. Then the Lord said, likewise, when you have done all that's expected of you, say of yourself, I'm an unprofitable servant. Now this is possible only by having been to Calvary. We realize that we're just nothing were but sinners. This woman, now this Pharisee had his faults, but this woman wasn't looking around. She wasn't saying, well, I'm an unclean woman, but this Pharisee, he's not any good either. <coughs> yesterday I saw him talking to an unclean woman on the street, or yesterday I saw him doing this, that, and other. This woman was so completely, completely overwhelmed with the consciousness of her own sinfulness that she could do nothing but weep. And likewise, she was so completely overwhelmed and absorbed in the presence of Jesus Christ that she could do nothing but kiss his feet. Now that is redemption. Hating self and loving Christ. There's no room in that at all to judge one another or make comparisons amongst one another. So here in Matthew chapter 6, the word, if it, um, the word aphasis is used several times. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now this is the word aphasis, which means more than just a hum, hold, type, well I forgive you. It's a release of remembrance. We're asking for an atonement. We're asking for a propitiation. We're asking for a remission of our sins as we remit Forgive other people their sins. Verse 14. For if ye forgive men, again, a faces, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So the blood is able to do its work only when there is a genuine repentance before God. Forgive us our debts. And where it works, there is a, as we forgive others, their debtors. So if 
in your consciousness at any times, though it be ever so deep, even in your subconscious, there is a grieving over another man's sins. There is remembrance of former faults done against you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the New English Bible, it says, Love keeps no score. I have thoroughly enjoyed that translation. Love keepeth no score. Now, don't we expect and want God to wipe our slate clean in heaven? When he does that, then we have to wipe our slates clean too. And that's one of the concepts of the word remission. Now, suppose you've written on the blackboard, huh? And you take an eraser and wipe it off. It's gone, isn't it? That's how clean gone our sins are when we have faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's been erased. You can write something else there, but that thing is gone. You, you can pick up all the dust off the floor and you never put that word back together on the board again, could you? <laughs> it's gone. And that's how fully we have to forgive one another's sins. And this is possible for us to do it when we're at the foot of the cross being washed in the blood. But what I'm, I'm, I'm saying is, I'm conscious that as you cling to the foot of the cross and allow the blood to cleanse you, there is a release from these things. There is a release. There's no doubt in my mind and my experience. I can have proven it. There is power in the blood of Jesus Christ for remission of sins. And if sins are only covered over and the thing is still clinging to you, to me, that's a pretty sorry or pretty unsatisfactory salvation. That would be good that there'd be no death condemnation upon us. But I thank God that his saving grace through the blood of Christ is for the remission of sins, a complete and total release. Look in St. Matthew chapter 18. Twenty-one to twenty-five. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Here the same word, aphasis. Till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I said unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Verse twenty-five. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and payment should be made, and so forth. You know the rest of the story. Verse 26, the servant fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience upon me, and I will pay thee all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. Loosed him. Forgave him our faces. So, the blood of Jesus Christ is for a loosing of the dead. And I want to, I think we'll close here this morning. It's a bit late. We've just started our study. We'll continue on. But I want to urge each and every one of you to know yourself in the light of God's word. And if you are capable of despising any other person, if you are capable of grieving over another person's uh faults against you, if you are capable of remembering any former iniquity, either your own or anybody else's, you need to go to the cross of Calvary and be cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is one of the fundamental benefits of the blood of Jesus Christ, a remission of all former things.
Where there is remission of sin, there is no more remembrance of sin. The former things are forgotten. They shall never come back to mind anymore. So do not settle for any lesser salvation than that. Do not avoid the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's all read together this story here in Matthew chapter 18, so important. <clears throat> let's read from 21 on down to the end of the chapter. We'll all read together. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto the Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Seest thou not? Shouldest thou not also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth with him, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. So he grabbed him by the throat and said, Pay me that thou owest. <coughs> Or he clenched his fist and said, why didn't you bring me my coffee? Or he grabbed the knife and said, I feel like hitting you because you didn't give me my breakfast this morning. <laughs> or you wept and cried and said, well, two years ago you were so cruel to me. Or you said so and so. These things deliver us over to the tormentors. And we will not be released until we forgive. <clears throat> now this forgiveness is through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. So run to the cross, cleave to the foot of the cross. Take a good shower in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let it cleanse you from all remembrance of your own sins. Now, that's why we remember our own sins. That's why we feel not fully accepted. The psychologists say, and I believe it is right, I judge it by experience in many, many lives we've dealt with. One of the greatest human problems is the feeling of rejection. That is true. Because all mankind have been rejected by God. Our sins have separated between us and God. He's hid his face from us. So there is a total rejection of humanity. The Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You can't get much more rejection than that. So people have a problem of rejection. That's why we reject each other and we reject ourselves. That's why... If you are to love your neighbor as you what? As you love yourself. 
you have to be able to love yourself to love your neighbor. And all feeling of unworthiness, all feeling of inferiority, all feeling of rejection, all feeling of self-condemnation, and all feeling of despising others, because they're all related together, comes from not having been to Calvary, not having been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Once we come under the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, there is release from guilt, from condemnation, from remembrance. There is an atonement, a reconciliation with the Father in which we can run into his presence and jump up on his lap and grab around the neck and say, I'm a father. And the ability to go look at our enemy right in the face and say, I love you, brother. And the ability to forgive and forget and to be forgiven and to be forgotten in, in the sense of unworthiness and all feeling of rejection and unworthiness is gone and we have utter confidence and boldness to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. So tomorrow we'll continue studying other elevators of the blood but let's spend a few minutes in prayer and ask God to take us back to Calvary again for a new, new bathing in the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.25 we might read this in context to see how there's just no other way of salvation at all. Beginning in verse verse 20, shall we say, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be the be just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Let's all read together 325. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So today we want to go on to the next concept. And under remission, of course, we had deliverance and forgiveness. The same word is translated forgiveness in Colossians 1.14. But now we want to go on to another word called redemption. Ephesians 1.7. Ephesians 1.7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In whom we have redemption. Now this word redemption is rather well known to us in, in English in the sense you have, you redeem something. Now, maybe none of you have ever hawked anything at a hawk shop, but a hawk shop is a place where you, when you need money, you go and pawn something of value that you have. Let's say you have a guitar. Take this guitar down to a hawk shop, of which there are many in New York, and you put it in, and the man gives you $10 and gives you a little coupon. Well, within a certain period of time, supposedly, you take your coupon back and give him back the $10 plus maybe another 10 more and you get your guitar back. If you don't come back in a certain length of time, 
then he'll sell the guitar and you come back and it'll be gone. Even sometimes when you come back within the allotted time, it's gone. If you can sell it for a good price, you'll sell it. But you redeem that coupon or you redeem your coupons on your cereal or something. Go get something for it. So redeeming means to buy back. So we are brought back to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were redeemed, I'm sorry, I'll read that again in a minute wrong. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead, and give him glory that your faith and hope might be in God seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So we were not redeemed with silver and gold, but we were redeemed by the precious, the priceless, the word precious means priceless, valuable blood of Christ as of a lamb slain without blemish and without spot. Now here it says we were redeemed, it's interesting to see here, from our vain conversation. Of course, the King James word conversation means manner of living. So we were redeemed from our vain way of living, the way of living which we received by tradition from our fathers. So there are various kinds of sins which fashion themselves upon the nature of man. One is, of course, those sins that we choose to do in our own depraved heart, our state of unbelief. We, we choose to sin. But there's another type of sin which we receive from our parents. And the Bible says death has come upon all men from the days of Adam up until now, even though we may not sin like Adam sinned. Nevertheless, sin reigns because this is transmitted. The curse of the parents is transmitted to the third and the fourth generation. This is just the facts of life. Not that God has done this because he's angry. It's just the way things are, that the parents transmit their way of living to their children. You'll find most children pretty much do the things, the customs they've learned from their parents. So there's a lot of just plain vain living, which results from us following in our parents' footstep. And it is quite suspected by many also that their demonic uh, inheritances passed on from parents to children. And uh, therefore, when we get saved, we need to be uh, redeemed from out of that whole curse that has come upon us generation by generation. Thank God the blessings multiply to the thousandth generation. I think that's why there's salvation in the world today. If only the curse were passed on from generation to generation, this world would have been destroyed long ago because the number of the wicked far outnumber the righteous. But the fact is that the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Isaac and Jacob, and the blessing of so many godly people have been multiplied to the thousandth generation, whereas the curses down to the third and fourth generation. 
whatever that be, we need to be redeemed from what we have inherited from our parents, whether it be an external vain show, vain, vain manner of living, or an internal disposition to ill, or some demonic oppression over us. Praise God, by the precious blood of Jesus, we are redeemed from out of it. Revelation 1, 5 also speaks about our being washed from our sins in his blood. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So here the concept is being washed in his blood. And Revelation 5, 9. Of course, when you're washed, that old dirt that was on you from vain manner of living or from whatever source is removed. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Redeemed us to God. We've been bought back to God. That possession which was lost has been bought back. You probably read this little tract that tells the story of a little boy who built a boat. He made a little boat. He spent a lot of time making it, worked very hard to make it. Finally, with great joy, he took it to the little lake in the park with a little string on it. He set it out to sail, and he was so happy watching his little boat sail when all of a sudden a gust of wind came and yanked the string out of his hand, and the boat went off and off and off into the lake. And he was so heartbroken that he lost his boat. Well, some days later, he was walking downtown, went by a pawn shop, and there he found his little boat in the window. And he got so excited, he ran in and said, Man, that's my boat, that's my boat, give me my boat. The man said, No, no, no. Someone brought that boat here, and I bought it from him. Paid $5 for it. The boy says, No, that's my boat, I made it. Give it back to me. The man says, No, I paid $5 for it. So the boy had to go home, and he worked hard and raked some leaves and cut some grass earned $5 and came back and gave the man the $5 and he got his boat. Then he took the boat back home. He said, oh, now you're my boat. Two times you're my boat. Once because I made you and once because I bought you. <laughs> so when God redeems us back by the precious blood of Jesus, we're twice fold his. He created us and he redeemed us. Now this Greek word, if you're interested, we're not going to give the Greek word to all these different concepts, but just a few where they have a wealth of meaning, is A-P-O-L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S. -S. Start again. A-P-O-L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S. Apollutrosis. It comes from the word apo, which means off. APO means like off, to take off, and lutron, L-U-T-R-O-N, which means to loosen. So this gives us an idea of what the word redemption means. You take the burden off, you take the chain off, you take the bondage off, and you loosen the thing, you let it go. See, it was being held by a man who owned it. You bought it away from him, so he had to let take it. He had to take his hand off of it. He had to untie it and let it go. And it's translated many times in the New Testament 
And these are some of the meanings. To deliver, to remit, to ransom, riddance, to get rid of something, riddance, depart, dismiss, divorce. That's an interesting meaning. It means to divorce. <laughs> now that thought is used in Romans chapter 7. We get divorced from our first husband and get married to Christ. Although that's divorce through death, whatever it is. Forgive, let go, loose, put away, send away, release, and set at liberty. So it's a word that's used quite a bit. It means all those various, has all those various shades of meanings. But this all is accomplished for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're delivered out of the hand of our former owner, the Adamic nature, Satan, condemnation, sin, vain manner of living. We're brought back to God, released from our former bondage, so we might come back and belong to God again. But now in the Old Testament, it has, I think, a very interesting meaning. And the Old Testament Hebrew word is ga'al, G-A-W-A-L, G-A-W-A-L, ga'al. And this is one of the compound names of Jehovah. He's called Jehovah Ga'el. Look in Isaiah 49:26. Isaiah 49:26. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood, as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Jehovah Gael, the Lord thy Redeemer. It's also given in Isaiah 54, verse 8. In the little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness would I have mercy on thee, saying, saith the Lord thy Redeemer, Jehovah Gael. Now, this is used in some other places we might look at. The principal place is in the book of Ruth. And here the real meaning is. Here in the book of Ruth, this word Ga'el is brought out with a very rich picture of its meaning. I think you all know the story of Ruth that in chapter 1, of course, Elimelech, which means God is my king, and he took his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Melon and Kilion, and they went down to Moab, which they were not supposed to do. They weren't supposed to go back to Moab. Why did they go back to Moab? Well, because there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem, Judah. So sometimes when we're serving God, we go through dry times. Sometimes we go through need. What do we do at those times? Well, some of us go back to Egypt for help. We'll go down to Moab for help. We had one of our faith homes recently. We're going through a hard time. And so they couldn't, had no food, couldn't pay the rent, so forth and so on. So one of the brothers says, well, I'll, I'll go out and get a job and help. <laughs> that thought comes to us. Of course, there's nothing wrong with working. That's honorable. But there's nothing wrong with trusting God either. That's better yet. <laughs> and so... The brother in charge says, no, brother, we'll just stay and wait on God. And then God wonderfully provided in his due time. Well, anyway, that's what Elimelech did. He and took his wife and two sons and went down to Moab. 
And uh, things went really bad for them down there. That's the trouble. And there the two sons died, as you know, and Elimelech died also. God was no longer the king when they got down there. And the two sons, Melon and Kilion, you know, that means sorrow and pining, and that's all they got down there. They died down there too. And poor uh, uh, Naomi in tones then uh, finds herself with two daughters-in-law, Orpha and Ruth. And then she hears word that there's bread back in Bethlehem, Judah again. God has visited his people, which God will always do in the course of time. So then she says, well, I better go back to the land of the Lord again. And so she tells her two daughter-in-laws goodbye, and off she goes. And, of course, you know the famous saying, Ruth says she's going to stay. Uh, verse 16, and chapter 1, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. Whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And then, of course, it says here, when she saw that her daughter-in-law was steadfastly minded to go with her, and then she left speaking unto her. So here's how this Gentile girl becomes one of the people of God. And it's, of course, how you and I also become one of the family of God, by a steadfast decision to follow the Lord wherever he goes and to be of his people and to live and die where the Lord lives and dies, going to the cross of Calvary, of course. So anyway, they go back then to the land of plenty, back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And here God has visited his people, so they're able to survive there. However, they're very poor, of course. The husband's dead. They've lost their family possessions, the field, the house they had formerly. And uh, so she goes back. She's a poor widow with her daughter-in-law. And so in order to live, she sends the daughter-in-law out into a field to reap because there was a law given in the Old Testament that when you reap the field, you will not gather up all the grain. You let some fall on purpose for one purpose is for the poor. And so Ruth would go along behind the gleaners and gather up a little bit of grain and take it home for her and her mother-in-law to eat. And she was working in the field of Boaz, who was a very wealthy man. And when he saw this young lady there and observed how she behaved herself in a very proper manner, she didn't flirt with the men, and when the men tried to flirt with her, she would withdraw herself and sit aside and eat aside and drink aside and so forth. So he had great respect for her watching her. So he told the men to allow a few handfuls to fall on purpose for her, that she might gather a bit more than normally. Of course, all of this is a beautiful picture how when the Lord sees that we behave ourselves properly and walk circumspectly, he'll allow a few extra handfuls handfuls on purpose to fall for us to enjoy. And so Ruth would go along behind the gleaners and gather up a little bit of grain and take it home for her and her mother-in-law to eat. And she was working in the field of Boaz, who was a very wealthy man. And when he saw this young lady there and observed how she behaved herself in a very proper manner, she didn't flirt with the men, and when the men tried to flirt with her, she would withdraw herself and sit aside and eat aside and drink aside and so forth. So he had great respect for her watching her, so he told the men to allow a few handfuls to fall on purpose for her, that she might gather a bit more than normally. Of course, all of this is a beautiful picture, how when the Lord sees that we behave ourselves 
properly and walk circumspectly, he'll allow a few extra handfuls, handfuls on purpose to fall for us to enjoy. <laughs> Give us a little bit extra to eat, praise the Lord, without having to sweat quite so much. Isn't God good? Anyway, then when Naomi begins to see that Ruth brings back a bit extra food, she begins to get a message in this and finds out what's going on, and she finds out that Boaz has noticed her, and then she remembers that Boaz is related to the family. And so in chapter 3 now, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? She was laboring. She was poor. She had no inheritance, no certainty, no assurance for her old age or anything. And so Naomi wanted to see that she was cared for. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee. You do believe you have found the kindred. Now wash yourself, baptize, receive the Holy Spirit, get anointed. Get thee down to the floor, and make not thyself known unto the man until he hath done eating and drinking. And it came to pass, when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. And she went down unto the floor, and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. As Paul said in Romans 6, You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which I delivered unto you. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly, and uncovered his feet, and lay down at his feet. I don't, don't think that's the best place to lay down at his feet. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid, and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid. For thou art a gaol. Thou art a near kinsman. I'm sorry, thou art a goel. I pronounced it wrong, goel. Thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou, O the Lord my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, insomuch as thou followest not young men, whether they be poor or rich. Now, isn't this interesting? He had noticed that, see? Now, she was a young widow. She was free to get married. And he was an old man. And yet, her devotion was toward him. Why? Because she had been so instructed by Naomi. You know, when a king's daughter comes to him and says, Oh, Daddy, I love you. I found a nice young man I love. I'm going off to get married and go away with him. The father is both sad and happy. He's happy the daughter has found himself herself a nice husband, but he's sad that she goes away. But let me ask you something. Suppose the king's wife comes and says, Oh, husband, I love you. I found myself a charming young prince. I'm going away with him. <laughs> he would have a different attitude altogether, wouldn't he? So see, when the Lord looks down upon his daughters and they say, I want to get married and everything, well, that's fine. Praise God. But suppose his bride says that. Can you love the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and go running after the young men too? Or young women or whatever it may be. Or money or house or land or whatever. So he had noted her that she did not follow after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not, verse 11, 
I will do to thee that that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. So Boaz is willing to perform the work of the Goel because she was a devoted woman, a virtuous woman, and an obedient woman. Verse 12, And now it is true that I am thy near Goel. However, there is a Goel nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a Goel, well, let him do the Goel's part. <clears throat> now these words here, the part of a kinsman, and do the kinsman's part, all those words are Goel. In other words, I'll read it just bringing that Hebrew word. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will guile the guile, well, let him guile. But if he will not guile, then I will guile. So that's what the word means, and we'll begin to see what this is. Read that verse 13 again. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth, lie down unto the morning. And she lay at his feet until the morning, and she arose up before one could know another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Also he said, Bring the veil that thou hast put upon thee, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley, and laid it on her, and she went away in the city. He gave her extra special revelation of the word of God that day. And she said, uh, and uh, 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, The six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then should she sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not rest until he have finished the thing, the this work that he was going to do, this goyle that he's going to do. Now, verse 4, this explains what the goyle does. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the goyle of whom Boaz spoke, the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke, came by, unto whom he said, Ho, oh, such a one, turn aside, sit down. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down, and he said, Unto the kinsman, unto the goyle, Naomi that has come again out of the country of Moab selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt, redeem it. Redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, this is what the word God means, to redeem something. Then says Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead unto his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was a matter in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. 
And Boaz says unto the elders and unto all the people, ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilian's and Malon's uh, of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased or redeemed to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead unto his, upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of this place ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of fairies whom Hamar bear unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Abbas took Ruth, and she was his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare, and the woman... You know, the story out of her came down in verse 21. Uh, Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. And it's interesting when the genealogy of Christ is given in, in the New Testament, it shows the genealogy through Boaz. So although he raised up seed to his brother's name, nevertheless, God reckoned it to his name. So here there was a nearer kinsman. And the nearer kinsman's first thought was, yes, I'd like to buy the property. Then Boaz says, well, remember the law of the kinsman is you buy the property, you take the wife also <laughs> and bring up children to your brother. He says, no, no, I don't want to do that. That would mar my inheritance. So here the Lord, of course, he's our goel, he's our near kinsman, and he wants to redeem us. Now, this is to redeem all that we have lost. Now, what did we lose way back yonder, huh? What was the piece of land we lost? The Garden of Eden, huh? <laughs> that was our, our land, and we lost it. Garden of Eden, and the glory of God, as Brother Michael said, the glory of God, heaven, New Jerusalem, Zion, we lost the whole thing. And here our Redeemer says he's going to buy it all back for us, but the only thing is he has to marry us also, <laughs> He can't just buy back the land. He has to buy the land and us also. So this is what redeeming is. It's redeeming us back to God, plus all of our lost inheritance is brought back also. But now who's this nearer Goel? Huh? Who's this nearer kinsman? that says, yeah, I'd like to buy that too. I want to get Jerusalem and Zion. I want to get the Garden of Eden. I want to get the glory of God, all those things. Let me buy it. He says, all right, but you'll have to marry the woman also. They say, oh, no, I can't do that. I'll mar my own inheritance. Who do you think that nearer kinsman is? If if the Lord is our, our goel that wants to redeem us and marry us and bring forth fruit, bring forth King David out of our relationship, who do you think the nearer kinsman is? Yeah, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. From 44 to 46. Well, read from... We'll just read 45 to 47. Or from 45 to 48. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 45 to 48. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Albeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is the earth, is of the earth earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. 
as is the earthy, such are they that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, so the first intent to redeem is usually our own effort, the effort of the flesh, shall we say. We try and redeem ourselves, and of course we fail. Then, of course, the Lord has to come and redeem us, and he does so by making us his bride. And what does it mean, I'll, I'll mar my own inheritance? What does it mean that this first kinsman, if he tried to redeem, he would mar his own inheritance? Well, see, the flesh has hope also, doesn't it? Our flesh has a hope of inheritance. We're waiting for a new body. Our flesh is waiting to rise from the dust also and to inherit eternal life. But if we try and save ourselves by the flesh, then even our flesh will have no hope of eternal life. The Bible says we're saved by hope. That hope is the redemption of the body. So then finally he says, all right, we'll let the Spirit redeem. We'll let the Lord from heaven redeem. Then he takes off his shoe. Well, first there, there are the ten elders there. Now, who are these ten elders and why does he take off the shoe? Well, Michael, if you've heard this teaching before. <laughs> Who are the ten elders that are sitting there by the gate? These are the ten judges. They're going to judge about the who does the who does the right redeeming and who does not. Ten commandments. Ten commandments, the law. We must fulfill all righteousness. So either the flesh has to fulfill all righteousness or grace does. Okay? When we finally yield to grace and allow the Lord to redeem us, don't we fulfill all righteousness? Yea, more so. Then why did they take off the shoe? In the new walk. We're not going to walk in the flesh any longer. We're going to walk in the spirit. So anyway, this gives us the meaning in this beautiful little story of the Gaal, Jehovah Gaal, the Lord, our Redeemer. So he purchases us unto himself, delivers us out of our poor, miserable widowhood of death and and she was married to or these two sons married to one of the sons of Elimelech the two sons named Malon and Kilion means sorrow and pining so she was living down in Moab and sorrow and pining and and God was no longer king and the husbands die and she's poor and destitute and working hard out in the field trying to get enough food to eat and all of a sudden, this kind man comes and performs the part of the kinsman. He's a Gaal to her, redeems her, marries her, and brings forth the kingly line of David from her life. So that's what is done for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed unto God. Now, the fourth mean that, that was the third mean. The first is atonement, the second is remission, the third is redemption. Now, the fourth <coughs> benefit of the blood of Christ working in our lives, we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 and 22. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. 
So here the blood makes peace. The blood makes peace. Now I'm going to give the Greek word here, and that's about the last of the Greek words I'll give. Maybe one more later on. The Greek word here is Irene, from which we get the name Irene, or in Spanish the name Irene, it means peace. And it means quietness, it means rest. It means set back together again, set it one, it means oneness. Um, in Greek it's E-I-R-E-N-E, -E, pronounced Irene, very much like the Spanish name of the woman, Irene, Irene, it means peace. It, hmm? Irene in Spanish, yeah. Irene in English. In Acts chapter 7, verse 26, <clears throat> there's an interesting use of the word, which gives you an idea of how the word is used. Acts chapter 7, verse 26 uh, we we read up in verse 25, For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one another? Those words, set them at one again, are this Greek word, erene set them at one again. They were fighting, and Moses wanted to create peace. He wanted to be a peacemaker. In fact, this is the word used for peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. But here in the same verse, it talks about reconciling. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. You who are enemies in wicked works, now he hath reconciled. I'm going to give the Greek word for reconciled. We've had the concept of reconciliation before, but not the Greek word for reconciliation. I think it's an interesting word. It's apokatalasso. It's A-P-O K-A T-A-L-L-A-S-S-O. Apokatalasso, you remember that word apo we had before means off. But katalasso means to make a compound of two different things. If you studied chemistry in school, you know you can have two entirely different things like oil and water, you cannot mix them together, right? But a compound is when you take two different things and put them together and make something new, but it's, it's a unity. For example, if you take hydrogen and oxygen and mix them together, what do you get? You get water. That's called a compound. So if you take God and man and make them into one, then you have done this word of reconciliation, apocatalasso. You've made them one. So this is what is accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. It makes one out of two different things. This verse is shown us, the same word is used in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16.
and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So here, of course, it's talking about the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles, as well as between man and God. We'll read verses 15 and 16. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So here the verse, I'm sorry, is verse 15, having made peace. But let's read this group of verses here, because now we come to the fifth effect of the blood of Christ. We'll read from verse 13 to 18. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So the fifth effect of the blood of Christ is to make us nigh, bring us to God, bring us to the family of God, make us close to God, and make us close to the commonwealth of Israel or the promises of God. We really have to start up here in verse verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having a excuse me, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make it himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which are afar off and to them which are nigh, that through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So this is accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ was born a Jew, according to the flesh. But when he died, he rent that veil in two. Now this coming nigh is to bring us in the most holy place, in within the veil. So that Jewish flesh was torn, and now he became the Savior to all men. Before his flesh was torn, before his blood was shed, he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel only. He could not really be for the salvation of the uttermost parts of the earth. So, so for the, through the shedding of his blood, he now reconciles all men into one, making peace between man and peace between man and God. So if, again, if we do not have peace with our fellow men, if we have ought against anyone, we cannot look at a brother peacefully in the face and speak peaceably unto man, it's because the blood of Jesus Christ has not worked yet to accomplish this in our lives. When we come to the cross and sit at the foot of the cross and allow the blood to cleanse us, then peace will come. Of course, peace is the first result of coming to Christ at salvation. Now he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you peace. Then he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you will find peace on your souls. 
So there's a further or a deeper peace and a deeper peace and a deeper peace in our flesh, in our spirit, and in our soul, to the very depths of our being, we must experience the peace of God so that we can live peaceably with all men. Even our most bitterest enemies, we can live peaceably with them. Although they may rail at us, we do not re re revile back at them. So if at any time your peace is lost, and this is something that the servants of God especially must be very, very quick to discern, if at any instant you lose your peace, even for a second, stop everything and find out what happened. Look in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Let's read together. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This word keep, what is that translated uh, more accurately from the Greek? You know? Umpire. So when you're out on the field playing some sport, and you're running with a ball, or you're competing with your fellow man, all of a sudden you hear a beep. What do you do? You stop and find out what went wrong. That's what the umpire does. So if at any time in your Christian walk or in your service or your ministry, all of a sudden you hear a beep inside the heart, you lose your peace, stop immediately, find out where the transgression was, and go back and start over again. This is of absolute importance if we are to be continually under the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ maintains our peace continually. And a servant of God should never, never lose his temper or his anger. Because we are called to be peacemakers. God hath reconciled us unto himself. Therefore, we now have the ministry of reconciliation. One of the principal aspects of our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. And if we don't have peace, how can we preach the gospel of peace, the good tidings of peace? If we can't get along with our fellow men, how can we go out and reconcile other men? Moses had to go out and try and stop these two Jews from fighting. That's what our ministry is, isn't it? If in any instance you're losing your peace, go back to the foot of the cross and be cleansed in the blood. The blood will restore peace to your soul. Until in the most stressful times... You can be praising God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your self-control be known to all men. The Lord is right here. Let the peace of God that passes all understanding keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Yeah, but what am I supposed to do about this problem? Let your request be made known unto God in prayer. Bring it all back to the Lord and leave it there. And rejoice in the Lord. This is all possible as you spend your time under the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now the sixth concept we want to study is Acts chapter 20, verse 28. <laughs> Acts chapter 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. 
Now, we could put this, if you want to, under redeem, which means to purchase also, or a separate heading. These outlines are not divinely inspired, so you could rearrange your own outline the way you want to. But we are purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are his special treasure, his peculiar treasure. We are his inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. We, but the thought here more is not that we've been redeemed, purchased back to God, but that we are his purchased possession. We are his wealth. We are his inheritance. We are his glory. So we are of great value in God's sight. Ephesians 1.14, read from verse 12, read from verse, of course all the whole chapter is good, we'll start with. 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. This, of course, he does by the blood of Christ, as we've studied. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, which we have studied by the blood of Christ, the Gaon, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom he also trusted after that ye heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. And this is the reason I've divided the word purchased from redemption, because in this verse, both verses are used. We are already his purchased possession. He purchased us by the cost of his own blood. But the final aspect of redemption will be when we are gathered together unto him. So he's given us the Holy Spirit, which is the down payment against that final redemption of the purchased possession. And this is all through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now the next, number seven, is the blood justifies us. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. We'll read from verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So here we were justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Some people have again made a play of words here with the English word justified to stretch it out and say it means just as if I never sinned. Like the word atonement is stretched out to mean at one minute. These are just happenstances with the English language, but really they come out quite close to the real meaning. Justified is to make us just, to make us right, with nothing charged against us. Indeed, just as if I'd never sinned. So the blood of Christ, when it washes away our sins, as we mentioned yesterday, to be remembered no more forever. And we must have this realization that we stand before God totally justified, totally acquitted. The story is told of a man who was up for trial, and he was indeed guilty, 
and there was no way he was going to escape condemnation, and he would have to go to the electric chair. But before he went into the trial, the, the, the king gave him a pardon. And so the king told this man, he said, now, I don't want anybody to know I've given you a pardon. So you put it in your pocket. And if in your trial the judge finds you innocent, then you can keep it quiet. But if the judge finds you guilty, then you can pull this pardon out. So the man was guilty, all right, but he went with his pardon in his pocket. And the whole trial went along, and all the witnesses came against him, and they read off all the long list of crimes that he had committed, and the prosecuting attorney with his two horns and long tail was really letting him have it. And my, the case was going bad against him. He had committed so many crimes. And finally, when the judge was to pronounce sentence, the judge was very angry. He said, I've never seen such an, such a, an arrogant, such a, a careless man. Here he stood through this whole trial. And look at him, how casual he is, how relaxed he is, how smiling he is. We've read off all this list of accusations against him. He has no fear at all. I sentence him to die by hanging at dawn. Then the man pulled out of his pocket, went up to the judge's desk and said, I've got a pardon. <laughs> then he understood why he was so cool and calm while the charges were being laid out against him. So I don't know if I told this story here recently, but Sister Alice and Eb and I had opened the faith home in Washington. <laughs> Pastor Sambal was traveling around. He came from a place where somebody had told him 20 minutes of stuff against me. And so he was really excited. So he said, Brother Don, look what I heard against you. So he told all these things, and I just sat there calm and cool and smiling. Sister Alice knew all those charges were false in this case, anyway. And uh, so when I, when I was all finished, I just kept quiet. She said, why aren't you going to answer him? And uh, I said, no. I said, he just spent 20 minutes charging me with false accusations. But I could talk two hours charging me of true accusations, so... I think I'll let 20 minutes of false accusations go rather than two hours of true accusations. <laughs> That's a slightly different example. But anyway, when we know that we've been acquitted, who cares what they say about us? And on the day of judgment, it may well be that all kinds of our enemies will open their mouth. The Bible says no tongue shall prosper, but they may wag. So have you absolute confidence that all your past has been acquitted, that you have been justified of all things that which you cannot be justified on the law of Moses? Now that is, I think, bring it more up to date, look in the book of Acts 13, Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Be known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now this is not speaking just about being justified from our former sins. This speaks about living a justified life. Now you may say, yes, I know my former sins are forgiven me, but I'm just not measuring up today. Now, I think this is where mostly it hits us. Somehow we know we still come short of the glory of God, don't we? 
and we walk around. You can see it on some people's face. You can tell by looking at Ronnie, see. His whole face sags and he walks around. And otherwise, he's smiling real big. And you can tell exactly how he feels. And he feels unrighteous. He feels unjust. Not only Ronnie, everybody else you can tell too. Or they're getting irritable. That's because something inside is condemning them. And all of this is because we do not know the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why I recommend you read this book called Calvary Road. It shows the secret of continual revival. And that is, at any given instance that your conscience pricks you, in any instance you lose your peace, in any instance you lose your joy of first love, immediately go to the cross and get cleansed of the blood. Immediately. And you can be restored instantly and go right on without spending weeks and months or days or hours dragging around and snapping at everybody and grousing and falling asleep in prayer and not being able to serve the Lord with joy and gladness. God doesn't want us to remain fallen, not for a moment. Look how quickly David got back up again. Huh? Look what David said. Psalm 51, he admits he sinned, verse 1, he asks God to blot out his transgressions, he asks God to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, cleanse him from his sins, verse 3, he acknowledges his sins, verse 4, he acknowledges his sin against God alone, verse 5, he admits he's a sinner from conception. Verse 6, he acknowledges that God desires truth and righteousness in the inward parts. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What's the meaning of hyssop here? Anyone not know? Hmm? Well, when they, in the, when they took the blood of the Passover lamb, what did they do with it? They dip the hyssop in it and sprinkle it on the doorposts. So this means the blood. Hyssop means the blood. It was a little brush they made out of a plant called the hyssop plant. And what he means is blood. But he's, <coughs> what he's saying is the sprinkling. We're going to study sprinkling in a moment. Purge me with the sprinkling of the blood and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, and on he goes. Uh, Make me to hear joy and gladness. He wants to come back to revival right away. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all my trans iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Cast not me away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Verse 15. Open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Verse 14, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. So, you see how quickly he's back up praising God again. It's remarkable, it's wonderful. And that's all because of 
faith he had in the cleansing power of the blood. So we should not remain fallen, not for a moment. The very moment we realize what's happened, we realize why we lost our peace, we realize how we got defiled, you can run to the cross immediately and be restored through the blood of Jesus Christ because we are righteous before God when we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can keep yourself from even falling by picking up the first wayward thought that comes because we are tempted when we're drawn away by our own lusts. So the very minute any lustful or any selfish thought or desire starts to even come upon us, we can run to the cross immediately and be cleansed instantly. And we do not have to even fall into a state of discouragement and despondency and condemnation and guilt. And this is how our thoughts can be sanctified. I think I shared with this last time I was here that I had battled for years with my thought life and finally kind of gave up and couldn't get anywhere until I found out that evil thoughts come out of the heart. And so, after that discovery and revelation from God, no sooner even any kind of a wrong thought, be it unclean or be it thought of vengeance or worldliness or whatever, any kind of a thought which is not according to Godliness, even begins to form in my mind, immediately I just give my heart back to the cleansing of the blood and it disappears immediately. This is my testimony for God who knows I tell the truth. And I praise God for a peaceful mind. <laughs> Hallelujah. If you go immediately to the blood. Now the thing is to go to the blood instantly. And we'll go on now to the next one. is the purging by the blood. John 1. First uh, John 1 9. Here the word is to purge or to cleanse or to purify. All these words are used here in Psalm 51. But we'll read them in the New Testament. First John chapter 1. And we'll go on now to the next one is the purging by the blood. John 1, First uh, John 1, 9. Here the word is to purge or to cleanse or to purify. All these words are used here in Psalm 51, but we'll read them in the New Testament. First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. Verse from verse 7 to 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sins. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here it's a matter of walking in the light. Now, light is that which manifests everything. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But instantly that we acknowledge our sin and bring it to the light, come to the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. So this is another virtue of the blood. It's cleansing, purifying, purging benefit. Now this Greek word is interesting, I think. It's katharizo, K-A-T-H. A-R-I-Z-O. And what's the English word like this that we use in, in medicine? To catheterize. You've heard of catheterizing the doctors do? Well, it's interesting. 
You know that uh, woman who had a flow of blood and her blood was staunched, catheterized? She was purged from her uncleanness. Eh? Look at another reference here in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The word purification here is this Hebrew word, katharizo. Let's see where that law of purification comes from in Leviticus chapter 12. In Leviticus chapter 12, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then shall she be unclean seven days. According to the days of the separation of, for her infirmity, she shall be unclean. In the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, and she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. But if she bear a maid child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying threescore and six days. And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation of the priest and for who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that hath born a male or a female. Now I was at a seminar for pastors, about 1,200 pastors there, and Bill Gothard was there. How many of you ever heard of Bill Gothard, I think, so you have? Anyway, if he ever has a seminary here in New York, I do recommend as many as possible go. His Bible teaching is very good. Bill Gothard. He conducts these seminars called Basic Youth, Youth Conflicts. And uh, he teaches the Bible very, very well. It's all biblical. And he is very... Uh, solid on thus saith the word of the Lord. So it's sort of a Christian psychology and philosophy concerning how to live in our daily life here. It's not doctrinal, but it's how to walk. And it's all biblical and it's very sound and very good. And he was teaching these pastors down there in Washington last week, and we had a very nice time there all day long session with him. And uh, he said it's unfortunate that many Christians sort of push the Old Testament away and say it has nothing for us today. He said it is the word of God, man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. He said although we do not approach it as legalism, nor try and justify ourselves by its precepts, nevertheless its teachings are valuable for us today. And he brought out this chapter here. He said there's a great plague going on in America today. It's the plague of women having hysterectomies. He said it's getting out of hand. And he said one reason is they do not go by this chapter 12 of Leviticus. If husband and wife would abstain according to this law here, then many benefits would come. One is, of course, he said they would not have 
so much need for hysterectomies. He said hysterectomy is almost unknown amongst the Orthodox Jews. Also, cancer of the female reproducing organs is virtually unknown amongst the female Jews, and they have thought possibly because of the right of circumcision. If husband and wife abstain according to this law here, and according to the law of a woman when she's in her time of period, that many, many benefits come. One is the woman, the uterus, are much healthier, stronger, and not diseased and not torn. And the woman is much healthier. Second, he said, the relationship between the husband and wife is much more wholesome because the wife respects the husband for his willingness to uh, discipline himself for the love of the wife which causes the wife to have great respect. And I have to admit that many of the married believers that I've talked to have told me that they despise their husbands and they feel like prostitutes because the husband only desires to satisfy his own passions. But if the husband would honor the word of God here, she would have great respect for him as a man of God, as a man of discipline, as a man who respects and loves his wife. Third, he says that he believes that if couples will discipline themselves according to this chapter and the portion also of a woman in her uh, time of period, that God then will take full responsibility for family planning. And all this great fear and perversion and corruption in the land over family planning is because men are undisciplined. And so he believes that you can trust God to open and close the womb if you obey God concerning the marital relationships. And I was very thrilled to see a, a well-known public preacher who preaches mostly amongst the Baptists, but of course many Pentecostals go to his teachings also, these 1,200 pastors that were present, I think most of them were Baptist pastors, but so boldly make statements like that. In fact, he boldly preached divine healing through observing the precepts of God concerning how we treat our bodies. And I thought that was very well brought out also. Now, just let me ask you, of course, we approach this also from the spiritual meaning. But as we, as we understand from the Holy Spirit, the spiritual interpretation of these portions, that does not mean they have no natural benefit. We would make a mistake if we only interpret the Old Testament spiritually and ignore its wise counsels in, on the natural level also. Now, spiritually, what would be the reason for two different time periods here of cleansing, one for a male and one for a female, huh? If you bring forth a female, you're unclean for a longer period of time than if you bring forth a male. What would be the spiritual meaning of that? Bring a soul, a great soul, something great. <laughs> and a woman of God. Could be. I, I've heard it interpreted as if you, if you bring forth some good thing, you're unclean. If you bring forth some bad thing, you're unclean. Some useless thing. You bring forth a useless thing, you're more unclean than if you, you're unclean for a longer period of time than you bring forth some, use, some useful thing. I don't know if <laughs> that's the best interpretation or not. But that, from the old Jewish point of view was that 
a woman was not as useful as a man was. But anyway, don't be offended at that interpretation, but I've heard that. But the thought could be true that if you bring forth something that would be uh, useful for the service of God, then you're unclean also. You're still an unprofitable servant, but if you do something which is not so beneficial, then you're unclean even longer. But whatever it is, the cleansing comes through the sacrifice of the blood of the bullock, or feet of the turtle doves, or whatever. But we have the blood of Jesus Christ, so we can come for a cleansing. And I think it is good if you preach a poor message, you pray for somebody sick, they don't get healed, then you better go and get cleansed in the blood of Jesus, right? And if you preach a real good message and pray for somebody sick that they do get healed, you should also go back to the blood of Jesus. Humble yourself and get cleansed, lest pride or whatever should corrupt you again. But now, in chapter 13 also, and on through chapters 15, well, no, chapter 13 and 14, we have the law of leprosy. We don't have time to read it all, but I like to just look through a little bit. <clears throat> when a man shall have in the skin of his flesh a rising, a scab, or a bright spot, and it be in the skin of his flesh like the plague of leprosy, then he shall be brought unto Aaron the priest, or unto one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall look on the plague in the skin of the flesh. And when the hair on the plague is turned white, the plague in sight be deeper than the skin of his flesh, it is the plague of leprosy. And the priest shall look on him and pronounce him unclean. If the bright spot be white in the skin of his flesh, and in sight be not deeper than the skin, and the hair thereof be not turned white, then the priest shall shut him up that hath the plague seven days more. Then he examines him seven days later, and if it is not spreading, if it is not deeper than the skin, then he shall just wash his clothes and be clean. But if it is getting deeper and spreading abroad, then it is leprosy, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. Down in verse 8, won't take time to read it all. Now, this means that we have to watch out for people's lives. And if we see some defect in their life, we have to observe and find out whether it's just skin deep or deeper than the skin. Now, it's skin deep. It's in the flesh. It manifests itself in the flesh. But it may be just on the level of personality, not on the level of character. What's the difference? Well, for example, foolish talk. Those that say foolish things, joking or whatever. That could be a very deep character fault. Coming from a lack of seriousness with God. You will find people who do not fear God are likely to be joking and jocular and light talking. They have no fear of God. You may have people that do not have any of the wisdom of God. There's no maturity in their character. Therefore, their speech is light and foolish. On the other hand, you may have a person that otherwise in the depths of his being is a solid believer, but he, had a, he has a bad habit of light talk. That's just on his personality. That's the way his personality is fixed. For example, you can have some people who are very, very jolly in their personality, but in their character they're morose and even suicidal. This Red Skelton, I think it is, you've heard of him, a comedian, very famous comedian. I think it's he. 
Anyway, some comedian like him, was, the story was told that he's always joking, not only on the stage, not only on the screen, not only on the radio, not only on television, even with his friends, even with his family, all the time joking, joking, joking. And finally, some of his friends told him, he says, can't you just calm down for a little bit and be normal? He said, I'm afraid to stop joking. I'm such a miserable man inside, I'd end up and have a nervous breakdown. Just a bundle of, of uh, distraught confusion inside, see. I heard another story, I, don't, I, don't, I shouldn't have used the name of Red Skelton, I don't know who it is really, but <clears throat> you've heard of some of these comedians that have almost committed suicide and so forth and so on. I heard the story told, I think it's in a gospel track, of a man who went to see a psychiatrist here in New York, and he said such despair and despondency and gloom about to commit suicide. So the psychiatrist recommended one thing after another, he said, I've tried that, I've tried that, I've tried that. Finally, the psychiatrist says, well, only one, one more remedy I can recommend. There's a famous comedian in New York. Everybody says when you go see him, you just laugh the whole time. So why don't you go see him? He said, I am that comedian. <laughs> so, so that's the difference between something on the surface and something deep down inside. See? Maybe getting upset with people. You have to see whether that's just a surface bad habit or whether it's coming from the depth of a troubled soul. So the priest has to be able to look at that. Now, continue reading on here. And uh, verse 12. Well, no, what does it mean now? What does it mean now? If, if the hair in the and the blemish is white, then it's leprosy. If it's not white, it's not leprosy. What does that mean? Well, see, when you have gray hair, if you still have faults at gray hair age, that's pretty serious, isn't it? <laughs> you should get rid of all these personality quirks before you get gray hair. See? Look at verse 11. It is an old leprosy in the skin of his flesh that the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up for he's unclean. In other words, you don't have to observe it for another seven days. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. So if you, in your old age you've got some faults, man, you're stuck with them. <laughs> so you better get them corrected before you get too old. And that doesn't necessarily mean physical age. That means spiritual age. <laughs> so surely don't think there's no hope for you and me. <laughs> it doesn't mean physical age. It means spiritual age. Yeah. Old hair, the uh, gray hair, the Bible says, is a sign of wisdom. See? So if in our wisdom we haven't corrected our faults, then how should we correct them? Now look at verses 12 and 13. And if a leprosy break out abroad in the skin, and the leprosy cover all the skin of him that hath the plague, from his head even to his foot, wheresoever the priest looketh, then the priest shall consider, and behold, if the leprosy have covered all his flesh, he shall pronounce him clean that hath the plague. It is all turned white, he's clean. Now, what does that mean? Here, if you have a little fault, you're unclean. But here, finally, you get covered from top of the head, the sole of the foot. I mean, you're a total, complete sinner. Then you say you're all right. What does that mean? Well, so you might confess one fault. You might reckon, you might bring out one fault. Okay, you get cleansed of that one fault. 
But suppose you finally come before the cross and say, Lord, there's no good thing in me at all. I'm totally undone. I'm altogether unclean. There's no soundness from the top of the head, the sole of the foot. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord says you're clean. <laughs> because the law of cleansing is that the blood cleanses us from all of our leprosies, right? Then it goes on a lot of interesting things here. The one I like is about the fretting leprosy. <laughs> Have you read about that? <laughs> or in verse 51 of chapter 13, the end it says, the plague is a fretting leprosy. It is unclean. How many of you have fretting leprosies, huh? Do you worry about this and fret about that? <laughs> it's a fretting leprosy. <laughs> and then chapter 14 is about the law of cleansing. Remember when Jesus healed the lepers, he told them to go and offer up the sacrifice that Moses demanded. That's here in chapter 14. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought on the priest, and the priest shall go forth out of the camp. The priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of lepers, he be healed in the leper. Then he has to bring, of course, uh, the sacrifice. Then shall the priest command to take for him, that is to be clean, cleansed, two birds alive and clean, and cedar wood, and scarlet, and hyssop. Now, this hyssop is to dip in the blood. See, verse 6, For the living bird he shall take it, and the cedar, and the wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and shall dip them, and the living bird, in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water, and they shall sprinkle blood seven times, and shall pronounce him clean. Verse 7. We won't have time to read all of this. So, all these various cleanlinesses. Now, look over in chapter 15. Verse 2, speak of the children of Israel and say unto them, When any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue he is unclean. Now, some people have a running issue, or as the Bible says, the seed of copulation goes out from a man. Wherever he sits is unclean. Spiritually, what is our seed of copulation? It's our words. So if you have a running mouth, a fool is known by his what? By his much speaking. And the multitude of words never lack sin. So if we have a running issue, anger, pride, jealousy, we have some wives that are jealous of their husbands, it's, you just, it's, it cannot be corrected. A terrible thing. Until they acknowledge it's a sin. Anger the same way. Whatever it is, foolish talk, whatever it is, lightheartedness, prayerlessness, no zeal for souls, whatever your problem is, when you come and confess it as a sin, then the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you. The blood of Jesus Christ does not cleanse our faults. It does not cleanse our bad habits. It cleanses our sins. So whatever our problem is, and all these represent different kinds of sins, you bring them to the blood, and the blood will cleanse us. Chapter 14, verse 25. And he shall kill the lamb of the trespass offering, and the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering and put it on the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. And the priest shall pour the oil in the palm of his own left hand and the priest shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before the Lord and on and on and so shall he be cleansed. So whatever it is, we need to be washed in the blood, the blood sprinkled. Now, this is the next thing I want to bring out. It's the sprinkling of the blood. The sprinkling 
of the blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. This is all under the eighth point, all under purging. Because this purging is done by sprinkling. This purging is done by sprinkling. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now the sprinkling of the blood takes us back to the Passover lamp. That blood was sprinkled upon the lintel upon the doorposts. And no sooner God saw the blood that he passed over, all condemnation was gone. So this is to purge our conscience or purge our being from the consciousness of sin. We should not be conscious of our unworthiness. We should not be conscious of our uncleanness. We should not be dwelling on our faults, much less on anybody else's faults. And as I say again, as I said yesterday, the reason we are conscious of other people's faults is because we feel the presence of our own faults. That's why we see the specks because of the beams. And the blood of Jesus Christ, when we trust in the blood, purges our conscience that we can serve God with an open face, joy and happiness, with no guilt feeling at all in the presence of God. Chapter 11, verse 28. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch him. Verse 27, 28. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood. So this is by faith in the blood, faith in the efficacy of the blood, <clears throat> that I am righteous before God, my sins are forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm purchased, I'm belong to God, I'm made nigh, I have peace with God. When you really have faith in the value of the blood of Jesus Christ, your conscience is purged. Chapter 12, verse 24. Verse 22. But ye are come into Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heaven in Jerusalem, into an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and the judge to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel's. So we have come to the sprinkled blood, just as surely as we've come to Jerusalem and to Mount Zion, just as sure as we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, we are under the sprinkled blood. First Peter chapter 1, verse 4. I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So, for us to go on to perfection, for us to go on to full sanctification, we need to be under the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Sprinkle on our ears, our hands, our feet, our conscience, our mind, and our whole body. Now the next thing I have down here is the blood intercedes for us. We take this from 
the verse we just read in Hebrews chapter 12. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, what did the blood of Abel speak? Who remembers what the blood of Abel said? Hmm? <coughs> Crying out for revenge, wasn't it? God asked Cain, where is your brother? He said, am I my brother's keeper? God said, the blood of your brother Abel cries out from the ground. Now the blood of Jesus is also speaking. What does the blood of Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They know what to do. So the blood of Christ is also interceding for us in the presence of God. First John, uh, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 12 also. Hebrews 9, 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. So Christ entered into his intercessory ministry before the presence of God by his own blood. So with his blood, he's interceding on our behalf. And also in First um, John chapter 5, verse 8, we are told that the blood bears witness in heaven. It bears witness of our redemption in heaven. That's number nine, intercede. Number ten, going back to Hebrews chapter ten, the blood gives us boldness. Hebrews chapter ten, verse nineteen. This is the tenth work of the blood in our lives. Hebrews chapter ten, we'll begin reading at verse seventeen. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, through his flesh, and having a an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So you remember how the high priest entered into the most holy place, not without blood, on behalf of the people. So Christ has already entered into the <clears throat> most holy place with his own blood on our behalf. Therefore, we can now have boldness through faith in that blood to enter in also, right in the very presence of God. Now, this is meaningful and applicable when we go to prayer. If when you go to prayer, you have any feeling of heaviness or unworthiness, Oh, well, God never answers my prayers anyway, so you just go through the routine, mumble, 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 or say some funny words, and you have no real breakthrough in prayer. It's probably because you don't feel you have real access to God. And, then, and another brother who's no more righteous than you are in his own personal life, he goes in and enjoys God and touches God and comes out with a mighty blessing. The difference is one man has faith in the blood of Jesus Christ and the other man does not. So prayer becomes a real experience with God when we come through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ with boldness. Now the devil will say, well, who do you think you are? God's not going to answer your prayer. He didn't answer it last week. He won't answer it this week either. He'll try his best to discourage you from touching God in prayer. But if you have boldness through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can enter into the holiest. 11, the blood sanctifies us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. 
Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done this by them in the spirit of grace. So it's the blood of the covenant that sanctifies us. In the shedding of his blood, we are sanctified. That means we are set apart and considered holy or called saints by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now also in chapter 13, verse 12, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. So sanctification is not by our own efforts. Sanctification again is through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the more steadfastly, the more confidently and boldly we trust in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, the more effective will be God's sanctifying grace in our own life. Number 12, the blood also makes us perfect. Again, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well, pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So again, it's the blood of the everlasting covenant make, through which God makes us perfect in every good work to do his will. And also in chapter 10, verse 14, Speaking again of the sacrifice of Christ. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So through the offering up of Jesus, the shedding of his blood, we have forgiveness of sins in verse 12. We have sanctification in verse 10. We have perfection in verse 14. All through the offering up of Jesus Christ as our sacrifice. So we will reach perfection as we continue to trust in and abide under the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, God has revealed to me recently, and it caused me a great deal of joy, and I'm absolutely convinced of it, beyond any shadow of doubt, that any soul who puts their full trust and confidence in the Savior Jesus Christ shall be saved, sanctified, and perfected, made ready for the coming of the Lord. I have no doubt about it at all. Now, if we draw back, of course, God has no pleasure in those that draw back unto perdition. But we are not them that draw back unto perdition, but them that believe to the saving of the soul. So we are made partakers of Christ if we hold fast the confidence of our rejoicing for him unto the end. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun the good work in you will perfect it for the day of Jesus Christ. So God wants us. Of course, he chastens us. We have to do our disciplines. We have to take our punishments. We have to be exhorted and scolded. We have to make our restitutions. We have to ask pardon. We have to humble ourselves. We have to win souls. We have to read the Bible. We have to pray. We have to preach. We have to do church work. We have to, we have to do so many things. That's all true. But none of these things are ever going to make us perfect and sanctified. We are sanctified through the offering up of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ, faith in that blood, which will accomplish all these marvelous things for us and bring it to perfection because that blood is a living source of life. This is the last point I want to bring out. Number 13, John chapter 6, verse 55, the blood imparts life, imparts the very life of God into us. John chapter 6, we begin reading in verse 53. 
Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in him, and I dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, he shall live by me. And this is that bread which, will come, which came down from heaven, not as your fathers that eat men and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. So the blood of Jesus Christ did all these marvelous works in our lives as we have faith. But as we come daily to the blood and even learn to abide in communion with the blood of Jesus Christ, is not the cup that we drink the communion of the blood of Jesus Christ? Then God's life is imparted into us and built up in us, and we become perfected in him. Just like the Israelites, they ate that manna, and they drank that water from the rock, and finally every cell in their body was made out of manna and out of water. So as we eat and drink of Christ for a period of time, finally we become made out of him completely and totally perfect in his sight. So... Let's praise God for the work of the blood in our lives and come to the blood today.